My name is Mary Conquest. I'm your host for Safety Labs by Slice, the podcast where we explore the human side of safety to support safety professionals. We move past regulations and reportables to talk about the core skills of safety leadership, empathy, influence, trust, rapport, in other words, the soft skills that help you do the hard stuff. Hi there, welcome to Safety Labs by Slice. What is the link between well-being and workplace safety? How does a person's life outside work contribute to their safety choices at work? What's the role of safety professionals in boosting well-being? Is any of it the company's business? Jason Anker joins me today to talk about all these questions and more surrounding well-being and workplace safety. Jason's story gives him a unique perspective into workplace safety. In 1993, he was injured in a workplace accident that left him paralyzed from the waist down. The result was devastating for Jason and his young family. In the years that followed, Jason became a sought-after inspirational speaker, describing how the fallout from this event led him to rock bottom and how he managed to pick himself up, move forward, and commit to making a difference for others. He's the author of Paralysis to Success, Bouncing Back from Adversity. And in 2015, he was made a member of the British Empire for his contributions to the world of health and safety. Jason is the anchor in UK-based consultancy, Anchor and Marsh, which offers expertise on health and well-being, culture change, behavioral change, and inspirational leadership, among other business improvement topics. Jason joins us today from Manchester. Welcome. Mary, thank you for having me on your show. We're looking forward to it. Great. For many years, your speaking career focused primarily on your accident. You connected with your audiences to help them understand the true cost of a workplace accident and what it takes to move forward from hardship. But more recently, you shifted your focus a little bit to workplace well-being. Can you tell us a bit about why you felt that shift was an important one? I actually started speaking uh, 16 years post my accident. So initially, for probably for the first eight, nine years, I thought by sharing my accident story and the, the impact of my life was enough to change behaviours at work. And then about four years ago, I I started to talk about well-being because I was very aware because we're talking safety about the gut instinct when you believe something's unsafe that you should stop. And what always troubled me about sharing my story where I'm trying to ask people to stop and speak up was that without my accident, I can vividly remember stopping, think about the job, realised it was unsafe, and I still did it. And that part of the story is always, why did I do what I did? I know what I did was wrong. I know what I should have spoken up, but I chose to carry on working. And that part of my story is always, it's probably been, it's always been missing from a presentation. And then obviously you mentioned Tim, prior to his uh, business together, Tim was a confident, I mean, Tim's Dr. Tim Marsh, he's known globally around the world for his contribution to safety. And he had a conversation with me and just said to me that, there's more to your story than just an accident story. I think why you chose to do what you did is really, really important, and we need to we need to share this. And it was sort of Tim's early probes into my story and and looking at my well being at the time of my accident, how I was coming to work. I even go back to my presentations the year prior to my accident and look at how my life outside work 
the sort of fall apart and how that transgresses into what sort of person you become when you're at work. And that was really the start. So I sort of looked at the well-being side of, of my accident. And then with Tim's expertise, really helped me shift my presentation. And the responses, and I think if anything about the pandemic, we like to call it, the last couple of years we've all experienced, I think the whole arena of well-being has really come to the front. And so what we were talking about pre-pandemic, some clients were sort of saying to us, Yes, we like the sounds of that, but just stick to safety. You know, and I think now we've become so aware that persons, because everybody, everybody's been affected by this. You know, some people have lost, unfortunately, lost family members, other people have lost careers, other people have, you know, long COVID, but everybody's been affected somehow. And so I think a positive to come from this is that well being is now really, really looked at. And rightly so. So well-being, just, I just want to make sure that we're clear, it can be understood in a lot of different ways. I think most commonly people associate it with mental health, but can you give us a full picture of what you mean when you say well-being? Absolutely. You know, I can't say that my mental health had been affected by the time of my accident, the reason why I was suffering from a mental disorder, because I really wasn't. But my mental state why well, i call it mental well-being there's mental health and mental well-being and my mental well-being was really tested i was 24 years old i'd been made redundant at the end of 92 from a job i absolutely loved i was a sign writer i'm very artistic so it was a job i just got from leaving school the job i, I dreamed of leaving, the job i wanted to do i was very fortunate to get an apprenticeship and it, it was like the dream come true not necessarily the best paid job in the world but i, I really loved it so for me, being made redundant, it was just, you know, one of them things happening in life, but also I was suffering from marriage problems, like a young marriage with two young children. So debt, young marriage, losing your job, ended up working jobs that I didn't want to do, so low morale. So, you know, when we talk about mental health and mental well-being, for me is the physical state you come to work in the morning. You know, are you having breakfast? Are you drinking properly? I was drinking alcohol heavily at the time because my marriage was failing. So going to work in the morning, a little bit hungover, not eating properly, working in jobs I didn't want to do. So my work morale was really poor. And then going back home to the marriage problems at home as well, not sleeping properly. Uh, so these things for me, it's only now I can look back and these things were so visible that was happening to me. My, you know, And I think that we sometimes get a bit lost in the word mental health. You know, and we just think of people really struggling at the edges, either with depression or anxiety or, you know, bipolar or all these, all these sort of recognised conditions. But the majority of people are people just with well-being issues. It could be marriage problems, could be debt issues, could be problems with children, could be a fatality, could be children in hospital. So I believe that those affect so many people. It's just like yourself, Mary. You just, you just mentioned you caught off the back of COVID. You're not yourself. You're not 100%. And, but we come to work. We give our best. But and people will always try and give their best. But if they're struggling, their best, it might be just be barely minimal. I think that's the area where we've got to focus because it's not just about safety. People talk about safety because we can measure safety. But when we talk about things like production and quality and absenteeism, presenteeism, how much discretion 
discretionary effort do you get from a worker who's in a good place or having a bad time at work? So for me and what Tim's learned me, and it's really understanding that my accident had so much more, it happened for so many more reasons than just making a safety error, ignoring the safety rule. And I think that is like the awakening for me. I was going to ask you actually about how much do you think your well-being before your accident? And it sounds like you're talking about sort of struggling that falls short of an actual diagnosis, but struggling nonetheless. How much do you think that contributed to it as opposed to other factors like safety procedures on the work site or the way safety was handled generally on the work site? Yeah, and it's something I talk about towards the end of my presentations. My accident was a rush job, end of shift, lack of planning. There was many factors that maybe could have prevented my accident. But because I actually stopped and thought about it, I've always struggled using those excuses, shall I say, as the reason I had my accident. But I know if I lived in a place where I could have spoke how I was feeling, or maybe somebody would have noticed I was I was not myself, I'll say 99% I'm convinced that my well-being on the day of my accident was a significant factor of why I chose to work on safety that day. And I don't think another safety rule or safety procedure would have actually stopped me in that moment not climbing that ladder. The last time we spoke, you talked about flaws in instant incident investigation. And here's how you put it. Everybody looks for a broken rule or a broken procedure, and yet nobody really looks for a broken person. So can you expand on why it's important then to include that extra realm of information when we're investigating accidents. Absolutely. You know, I mean, Tim's currently doing an accident investigation at the moment, and because he knows he's about aware of this, it's like taking a couple of steps back from the incident. You know, you, you might see somebody working on safe or there's been an accident, and we all, like say we always look for that broken rule or broken procedure. But just by maybe asking the person how his life's been over the last couple of weeks, couple of months, over the last year, I guarantee that nine times out of ten, you'll hear something, probably answers a lot of the questions you've got about the accident. I've gone to a lot of sites today and say, for example, a company's got me in to speak to the scaffolders about working at height. I go in there and say, look, you know more about working safely at height than me because you do that as your profession. So I'm not going to sit here and go through all the rules and reasons why you should work safely at height. I want to talk to you more about why do you choose not to work safely? And nine times out of ten, what I'm getting at the moment and the, the conversation I have around mental health and well-being, more people talk to me after my presentations about well-being than they do safety. That is the indication for me that this is touching on something different, that people are coming to work and, you know, the rules and regulations are always going to be needed, you know, procedures and all these are significantly important to working safe but understanding the impact of someone having a no having no sleep in fact only last week um a young guy could speak to me at the end of the presentations i basically said to the audience if anyone's been affected by anything i've said or you want to have a you know a private chat with me after the presentations and a young guy came up to me and said look i really like working for this company this is a really good family company i've worked here more or less since leaving school this is unfortunately my second child has just been born. It's quite poorly. You know, it's not 
long term, not life threatening, but it's still in hospital. So I'm looking after the the other child in between working, in between going to the hospital and seeing the parents, my partner and the child. He says, I'm not no sleep. He says, I'm absolutely worn out. So all the things you talked about before your accident, in a similar sort of way, even though I've not got marriage problems, I feel I'm in a similar place to what you was, trying to juggle my job, trying to do this, trying to do that. He says, I'm very fortunate. I work for quite a good company. He says, could you, I can't imagine what I'd be doing if I was working in a poor workplace. So that sort of makes me very clear that I think individuals have a massive responsibility to look after their own well-being you know, by doing things like um, what they eat, what they drink, keeping hydrated, sleep. But also believe that the companies themselves have a responsibility to make sure that workers come to work and work in a good environment. So for me, there's two sides to this. It's the work for themselves and the company themselves, their role. I'd like to talk about both of those, but just as you mentioned that people come up to you after, first of all, do people put up their hand and share these stories publicly, or do you find that it's mostly people coming up afterwards to have a more private chat? Great question. We're still in this space. I'm speaking from the UK, and I think most people say the British are quite reserved, and, you know, people aren't still even though there's more awareness around mental health and well-being in the workplace people are still very very reluctant to speak up so i try and speak to the others that it's the person you know the leader the supervisor the manager if they could come forward and share a story about their mental health issues it creates that environment where it's okay to speak about it you're probably not aware over the weekend there was a ufc fight with a fighter from the uk it's quite brash. He's, he's very likable, but he's a real. He's from Liverpool. He's a cheeky chap, and he's very good at fighting. And he won his fight. And straight away afterwards, as he was doing the interview, he just said he went on this thing and said, "Look, my friend, unfortunately committed suicide. He got a call at four in the morning. I dedicated my fight to him." But then he went on to talk about mental health and speaking up. You know, he says it. It's not a weakness to speak up, it's a strength. And you give a present, you know, he spoke in the ring for just a couple of moments, a couple of minutes. Well, the impact that's in the UK over the weekend and even now, because he's a rough and tumble fighter, but he spoke about his own mental health as well. So one of the charities, one of the men's mental health charities, about a 50% increase in people coming forward. So the answer to your question is, it is difficult to speak up. And I think it's really vital that people who have confidence and who appear strong, um, if they can share their own stories around mental health, and it's that phrase that break the stigma. And it, you know, I think sometimes we hear it so many times, it loses a bit of power, but it's all about that, isn't it? It's all about the more we speak openly about this and make it just a normal conversation, a normal thing to speak about the football, the soccer, the, the things you know, we found at the weekend. And then just, I've had a bad weekend. Oh, what's the problem? We tend to shy away from those conversations. But unfortunately, when something bad does happen, we all then say, oh, yes, I knew something wasn't right. So it's like we're behind, aren't we? We are still in a place, I think, where we, we are reacting to mental health and mental and well-being. We need to be more proactive. So let's talk now about sort of responsibility. How do you see it? There's Obviously, there's some individual responsibility. There's some organizational responsibility. Let's start with individuals. How much of a person's well-being 
would you say is their personal responsibility? Massive. So again, I've I struggled with my mental health for 25 years after my accident, and I tried to hide it. I didn't tell a soul. I used alcohol. I wasn't an alcoholic, but I'd go out on a weekend and I I drink far too much. Anxiety I suffer from mainly. So going out to a bar, I'd be anxious about my wheelchair. So I'd pre-drink before I went out. I'd get out. I'd be nervous. I've got accessible toilets. Was it access? Would I get in even? So all these anxieties have followed me around. So then I'd go out, and because I was anxious, I'd drink far too much. And then I'd obviously make probably a bit of a fool of myself. And the next day, for the guilt and anxiety, you've done it again, you drank too much. So I start skipping meals. So my sleep pattern was all over the place. I could never have sleep. I've tried so many things over the years to try and help myself. But I'll say the turning point, you mentioned writing the book, and I had a ghostwriter help me write the book. That process of writing the book was really difficult. I had to start speak about how I was really feeling. So all the things I'd hidden for so long came out in the book. It was like for the first time realising that speaking up about how he was feeling and a lot of people after the book came out read it and said, we never knew. We never knew you were struggling at the time. If only we knew, you know. And I think from me speaking up about how I was feeling was probably the first big turning point in my life. Right. You know, so from the individual, what I've done now, I always say there's no one big thing that changes you. It's a, it's a series of small things. And the small things can be really, really small, but you practice these things over and over again. And then the next one comes along and these little things just start to add up a little bit. So the first one I did for my, for my anxiety was learn how to breathe properly. Learn how to breathe. I think, well, everyone breathes all the time, but when you actually look at how you do breathe, you know, with anxiety, you take short breaths anyway, but learning to breathe properly when you get anxious. Everyone knows when you get mental embarrassment, what do you always say? Take a deep breath. So we know these things work. But now I, I get up in the morning, I do my breathing exercises every morning. And then during the day, if I notice anything sort of unsettling me a little bit, just calm myself down, take some deep breaths. That went into my diet. It went into drinking more water. I've stopped drinking alcohol completely. I'm not an anti-drinker, anti-alcohol person. But for me personally, the realisation between my bad sleep, anxiety, and alcohol. So two Christmases ago, I stopped drinking alcohol I'm still on it. And for the first time, I feel like there was like my head's clear. I'm sleeping better. So I'm less fatigued and I'm not tired all the time, making better decisions, lost some weight. So all these things slowly set up. It was probably a bit the last three years. You know, it wasn't overnight, but now I'm in a place, I think I'm the best place I've been mentally, if not before. Definitely since my accident, I'm now in a better place. And, you know, go back over what you've asked me before. I believe if my accident happened, you know, if I was the person I am today with the things I do for my well-being, look after my well-being, would I have spoken up on that day? I'll say, yes, I would have, sp- I'd have spoken up. But I'll take it a stage further. I would not have been doing that job. I would have walked off some weeks before it even happened. So this shows to me that by looking after your own well-being, I practice gratitude every single day look after my well-being, not meditation such, but I've got some breathing exercises very similar to meditating. Um, but other people are noticing as well now. So it's not just me thinking I'm better, it's other people noticing there's been a big change in me. It sounds like it's, practically speaking, it's a bunch of small habits, but really the big picture is that it's the habit of taking care of yourself. I couldn't wear any better. And that's it, it's taking care of myself. Taking care of myself physically, 
you know, the things like a bit of exercise, drinking more water, but also mentally as well. I think I spend time, you know, we look after your physical health. People say, oh, yeah, I do this in physical health. How many people actually take their time to look after their own mental health as well? And I think that is so important in learning how to uncut your mind, how to calm your mind. You know, that's all part of not sleeping properly. You know, I've learned ways now that when my mind's really racing around and just to notice where it is, and a lot of the time I've drifted into the future again. I'm worrying about things that have not even happened. And staying in the present moment is so calming just to stay in the present. And it has taken a little bit of time. I've not lost any friendships over this, but I don't mix in the circles I used to mix in all of the time because they're still in a mindset that doesn't help my mindset. So some my friends, I still pop and see them, but I'm not into the, the things I was doing before because learn how to look after your mind. It's why you say practice gratitude. It's because you're always practicing it. It's not something you do for a short period of time. I must admit, like being on a diet or eating healthily, you may lose weight while you're doing it, but it's when you stop, the weight goes back on. So if you can back, you talk about your mental health, all these things to do to look after your mind are a constant. You can't go so far, then stop, and think everything's going to be fine. So, yeah, on that side, I think that's what it is. Yeah. Practice, 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 practice. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's practice, practice, practice. You know, I think people are working on speaking up and, and more people because of COVID realize the importance of well-being, but there is still a bit of a stigma. It's considered a private matter. So when an organization wants to start taking care of their employees or being aware of their mental well-being, is there a risk that organizations could overstep the bounds of privacy in trying to learn or improve worker well-being and if so how can they do it in such a way that that won't happen yeah that is one of those i call reasons why people are still scared around mental health i call it like a barrier i'm not doing that because if i do that it might get to hr i might lose a promotion all these and i think you know initially there may be some instances where it seems like this is not going to work or this is probably the wrong way to go because there may be a, it's like the safety story in there. There's always that story somewhere where somebody raised a safety concern and got sacked. Really did happen. It's an urban myth, but that gets mentioned, doesn't it? And I'm sure the same thing is going to be put out there about our mental health. And again, it goes back, the more we can speak up, the more senior people of an organisation can normalise this conversation around mental health, that it's not stigma. In fact, you know, if someone comes forward with a mental health issue, it shouldn't be something that knocks their career back. If anything, it should actually expand their career forward because you've got somebody in your organisation who's confident enough to come forward and tell you a problem. Because just by not sharing that problem doesn't make the problem not there. And that person then might may get promoted into a position that they can't handle. Good work is good for everybody. You know, it's that saying, good work is good for you. So people in a lot of careers, do not get paid for having time off work. Yes, agreed. So the old thing about people, oh, we'll lose that so many staff to mental health and people won't be going to work. No, people at the moment are coming to work with mental health issues. That is fact. And these people with mental health issues, you know, might not be as productive. They're going to work and doing the best they can possibly do in that moment. But are they more prone to making a mistake? Are they more prone to not speaking up about a safety concern? Are they more prone to still think, I've got so much go off in my mind at the moment, even though I can see somebody else doing something wrong, 
all my energy has gone on into me doing my stuff. So, I, again, not quoting stats, I'm not a statistician not on all this, but I think it's, companies are, are scared that the well-being aspect is going to cost money. But actually, it's the opposite. The amount of money you will gain by looking after your workforce, staff retention, production, increased quality, safety. Safety is actually a byproduct of all this because if we get all these things right, the well-being right, and it's something I said only this week actually on a presentation. Anybody who knows me, my presentations change all the time. I hear something or I come on a show like this, I hear a comment and it stays in my mind a little bit. And somebody said that a lot of CEOs will get on stage at the annual conference and without few exceptions, we'll, it's first time the company will be safe is our number one priority. And yet there's people in the audience thinking, if you only you knew what I was doing last week, I got away with it. But for me, it should be people first. People should be first. Because if people come first, you look after well-being, all these other things. Good safety should be a byproduct of coming to work, having a good day at work. Why well, I, I can come to work in the morning. I speak about, for so many people, companies will say, our number one priority is that people go home in the same way they arrive in the morning. What if we could create a workplace where people feel valued, where people feel part of the team, and they could come to work maybe after a bad weekend at home with their family or for whatever reason, come to work, have a really, really good day at work, and actually go home better than they arrived in the morning? Yeah, I mean, that would be wonderful. And for organizations who see the value, there's always going to be some that don't see the value and they'll, they will show themselves through their actions. But for ones that do see the value in that, there's certain things that they can't control. They can't control how much a worker sleeps or if they eat in a healthy way or not. So what do you think they can do? Like practically speaking, what can organizations do to lift up their employees? Yeah. Okay. So I'm quite fortunate to work a lot with big clients. And some of these modern young companies, you know, the Googles, the Facebooks, with the young staff, they're already aware of this. So, you know, you go into some of these offices of some of these companies and some of the rooms, some of the floors of the office suites are very, very similar probably to a nightclub. You know, they've got chill-out areas because they've realised that young people working for us, and I don't know which client it was, I went into the office and I said, this looks very similar to me, like a nightclub. He says, but we have to do this. If we want to attract the people we need to attract today, we need to do these things. However, what we found is that you can work somebody for eight hours behind a desk and making sure they don't leave a desk only for breaks. But if we give them the flexibility to do their work, and yet if they're feeling tired, there's even sleeping pods in some of these buildings where they could go and have a half an hour sleep. He says, our production levels are higher than what they were if we were stand over them for eight hours. So I think you're right. It is the young modern companies of today who recognize a guy presenting just before me was talking about lighting and plants. And I thought, when he's nine come aboard, I thought, this this presentation's what's going on. Yet by the end of it, suddenly realizing that the impact the environment has on the workforce is quite eye-opening. You know, and I think we need to appreciate that the older companies in their old ways are getting what they've always got. You just get what you always get. And yet the new companies are trying to do something different and, and actually wanting staff to remain with them. They don't want staff to leave and be recruiting all the time. They want the staff to come to get someone to stay within the company today. It's not all about pay. Pay is always going to be important. But if that's all you've got for someone working for your company, 
as soon as somebody offers more money, that person will leave. But if you can create an environment where people actually enjoy coming to work, feel fairly paid for work they do, yet they have a really, really good day at work, it's just a win-win. So they go happy, have a happy weekend, come back to work for the following week, rearing to go. So there's no, it's just realising that side of looking after your staff and the value that can bring your staff is unbelievable. And as you're pointing out, it makes business sense too. So last time we spoke, you said something really powerful about what might have prevented your accident. You've done a lot of thinking about this and you say that the signs that you weren't in a good place were fairly obvious. Do you remember what's the one thing you feel that might have changed your choice that day? I can tell you what you told me. <laughs> it's probably to ask him if I was okay. Because people knew, the, the sad thing was, it was a day after my accident that other people who was working there came forward. And I started sharing, oh, I think he's having problems with his marriage. I think he's drinking far too much. This isn't right. That isn't right. But they didn't speak about that till the day after my accident. Um, there's a couple of ways of looking at this. I had a responsibility for speaking up, but obviously because mental health 29 years ago wasn't really talked about. However, for whatever reason it was, people knew I wasn't myself. It wasn't just that day. It was probably for a good month prior to my accident. I didn't see myself. I had Christmas coming up. I had no money, so marriage problems. I was bringing these problems to work, not sharing with anybody, and yet other workers had recognised there'd been a change in my behaviour. I bring that up too because you, we're talking about what organisations can do, and you said that you get the sense that some organisations feel that it's costly, like that they have to put in these elaborate well-being programs, when really asking someone, how are you doing, is free. Without a doubt. Um, the problem of asking someone if they're okay, and that's it, is everybody, especially when we talk about in the UK, but it's probably a global thing, if someone asks you if you're okay, the normal response everybody gets is, I'm fine. It's just what people say, how are you today? I'm fine. But it's the second time you ask that question. Now, you don't see me say, are you sure you're okay? And you might get some people who crack straight away, but nah, I'm all right. I mean, but volume has changed a little bit. No, come on, let's go for a cup of tea. Let's go for a cup of tea. You'll find if it's not the second time you ask, on the third time, people normally crack and then they'll tell you what is actually going on. So, yeah, I think that that's the thing. But, but the law of I'm fine, as Tim Marsh pens it, it's law. If someone asks you if, by law, if you don't say I'm fine is your response, you can get arrested. And it's a great joke on stage, but he's very serious with what he said, the law of I'm fine. We're all so guilty of it. You know, we find it very difficult to, even if we're really, really struggling, if someone asks you, are you how are you today? You know, I'm fine. And people, and some people have asked that question not wanting an answer apart from I'm fine. Yeah, I think that's the core. And that's why asking it the second time is what cracks or third is what cracks them is because they realize, oh, you really want to know. You actually want to know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a quiet thing. You know, and what we see at the moment is that's where the training around mental health, mental well-being and all the stuff sort of we do is learning to want to know the answer. You can ask how are you in a way that you might say to the person, don't say anything else apart from you're fine. And then when something goes wrong, you fundamentally finally say, well, I asked them if it's okay. They said everything was fine. And there are always going to be people out there that do that. But if we really want to move forward around mental health is we need to learn how to have those conversations. And if someone comes back and says, no, actually, I'm not fine, is, is what, what we do next. 
So there are a few questions I ask every guest. And the first one, I'm going to call this the University of Jason. (laughs) So if you were asked to develop a curriculum to teach soft skills to future safety professionals, where do you think you would focus? Communication. I think it's all what we've talked about all evening on the podcast of all the things that may or may not prevent my accident, may not have speaking, learning how to communicate, you know, fairly. But if you're a manager, there's ways you have to talk to your staff, there's ways you have to create morale, all, all these things. So communication is absolutely massive. And learning how to, I always say, we need to learn how to speak. The biggest thing we need to do is learn how to listen. We're very good at talking. I can ramble on and on for hours, and I've been accused of it before. And one thing I'm learning for myself on some of the coaching I have is learning how to listen, learn how to pause. So when you've asked a question, are you listening to the reply or are you waiting for an opportunity to speak again? And I think that with closed listening. So you've asked the question for somebody, you're not really listening to his answer. All you're actually doing is waiting for a pause while they're speaking so you can start speaking again. So obviously well-being is a thing that, you know, I'm trying to champion at the moment. But I like to stay through. Like I think communication, because if we can learn how to communicate with people, that means we can be more open about how I'm actually feeling. So it goes back to your previous statement, how are you today? Well, actually, I'm okay. However, this happened all that. So do you just understand how quickly that this could sort of build? I don't think this is this big scary monster that people think it is. I think it's looking from this from a slightly different viewpoint that if we can communicate better about how we're feeling, I think we work safer as default. Uh, we work smarter. So companies can generate more profit and, you know, quality wouldn't be an issue. So, yeah, the champion around communication, that we can speak openly, you know, and I think that's quite amazing and achieve so much as well. Yeah, and I think it goes well with what you're saying about asking, as you said, how are you doing and listening to the answer? Because there's a big difference between I'm fine and I'm fine. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and that's part of communication is listening to tone and that sort of thing. Which leads on to, we're losing a lot of communication skills because of things like text messages. As you said, a text message, how are you today? I'm fine. Do you read any body language? No. So again, I think the whole thing is actually face-to-face asking someone, are they okay? Then sending the, the email or the text message, how are you? Because I'm fine. So how can we start to learn that someone's not quite right or not feeling themselves just by sending text messages or emails. Yeah, it gets rid of the tone, which is a huge part of it. Absolutely. So the next question is, if, and this might seem obvious, but if you could travel back in time and speak to yourself at the beginning of your career, so not necessarily about the accident, and you could give yourself only one piece of advice, what would it be? Probably be more confident. I wasn't a confident person anyway, you know, leaving school, did great in my exams. I was very quite shy, not very open to speaking up about anything as a young person. And it's only now I'm actually being a lot more confident when I, when I speak to people. You know, if something's not right or something I disagree with something, instead of just agreeing blindly, yeah, 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 I'll tell people. So I'm 54 now, so I'd say for the last, getting on for 40 years, I've been very good at not being confident <laughs> been a master of it so being more confident which leads back into the accident if i'd been more confident would i have spoken up that day so this is it's actually are you okay 
if you're not very confident, you'll probably say, I'm fine. But if you're a confident person, you'll say, probably, I'm fine. However, so for me, confidence would have been a big change through my life and through the recovery of my accident as well. Yeah. You've written a book about your story, and I'm sure that listeners will want to look that up. Are there any other resources that you recommend that you think are really helpful to learn about the role of well-being in workplace safety? I'll plug Tim Marsh's latest book as well. Um, it initially was Health and Safety, and he, he wrote it. I think he's, he's done another edition at the moment, actually, about you know, health, safety, and well-being. And looking at that role, that taking that holistic approach to health, safety, and well-being, obviously my book is just a story of my accident in my life where it stems it a lot more in depth. Personally, now, I just read anything that boosts me, you know, anything to do with um, positivity, anything like that, because it's not just in your own personal life. Anything you learn around positivity and improving your own life can be pushed into the workplace and shared with colleagues. Yeah. So where can our listeners find you on the web? Just www.anchormarsh.com. My daughter has um, the motivational speaking side of Anchor and Marsh, Proud to be Safe. That's www.ptbs.org, where she's got a list of, of speakers, survivors of accidents, and people involved with accidents. Her wall now have moved the story into the wellbeing arena as well, looking at their accidents from their own wellbeing point of view as well. But the Anchor and Marsh is, is the main site. Okay. And we'll have that in the notes, by the way, but Anchor is spelled A-N-K-E-R. So that's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our listeners for your support. And a big thank you to Jason for sharing your hard-earned wisdom. Oh, thank you very much. Really enjoyed it, Mary. Thank you. And the last thanks go to the Safety Labs by Slice team who care about and support each other so we can all do our best work. Bye for now. Safety Labs is created by Slice, the only safety knife on the market with a finger-friendly blade. Find us at sliceproducts.com. Until next time, stay safe. <laughs>